do it. Optimizing your cloud spend while controlling your costs is easy. By combining intelligent software with expert consultancy and unlimited support, Doit delivers the true promise of the cloud with ease, not cost. Learn more at doit.com. That's doit.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Stack Overflow, the podcast. I am Ben Popper, your director of content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by the two members of my content team, Ira May and Ryan Donovan. What's going on, y'all? Oh, not much. How are you doing today? Pretty good. So today we have Alex Bovee, who is the founder and CEO over at Conductor One. And we're going to be chatting a bit about security and authentication, when those things can get in the way of developer productivity, and what ideas are for building better versions, I guess, that are safer, more private, but also can be a little easier to fit into a great developer experience. So Alex, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to chatting with you guys. So You've started your own company. I know you used to work at Okta, uh, which is a service we use here at Stack Overflow. For folks who are listening, just give them a quick flyover. How'd you get into the world of software and technology and how'd you end up focusing on this specific segment of the industry? Yes, I've always considered myself to be like a technology enthusiast. I've pretty much been in technology in some way, shape or form throughout my entire career, whether that was building software early in my career to technology consulting to working at various startups, um, including Okta. And then most recently, how I got into this space was from my journey actually at Okta, which, as you mentioned, is an identity um, and authentication company. I was uh, leading security products there and really saw this challenge around the need to manage authorization and access control for companies. Kind of companies were solving a lot of the authentication problems. That is who you are as a user and being able to verify that. And then once you figure that out, the next question is kind of obviously, well, what are you allowed to do within this application? What are you allowed to do within these different resources that you access? And uh, companies just struggle with that. And so we started Conductor One really to help solve that permission management challenge. And, and there's a lot of different aspects to that, that problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I think security has been on everybody's mind lately. Everybody's shifting left the security into the uh, software development lifecycle. But you know, absolutely have run into issues where I can't get in and do my work because of some security issue. You know, I got to get a two-factor authentication. Maybe my phone broke or something. Like, how does security get in the way? Yeah, so I think in general, there's always been this trade-off and tension between security and productivity. And I think that harkens back to the idea that that had to be a trade-off like if you wanted to make things more secure the best way to do that was to obstruct and to challenge and kind of get in the way and i think what we've realized over the last really 10 years is that employees and users will just work around technology if it doesn't work for them and they'll work around the security solutions that you put in place and so i, I think there's been actually a pretty big reckoning industry-wide at this level of like well if we're going to put security products in place that just make everyone's lives harder, people just aren't going to use them. We're going to, they're going to find ways to avoid them. So in the context of what you're saying, Ryan, I think there's different patterns and approaches that companies are taking now to make sure that security doesn't get in the way of productivity. One is making sure that you're just buying products, first of all, that actually delight users and have better experiences and solve the problem without actually getting in the way. The other is this, this idea of like shifting left which is actually kind of instead of solving the problem at like the detection and response 
point, kind of shifting that more towards how do we prevent this from becoming an issue in the first place, which then kind of obviates the impact of like a security response in the first place and makes it so you don't even have to you know, experience some sort of like disruption to your workflow. I think there's a, a lot of dimensions to that problem, but I do think in general companies are are waking up to the the idea that you can't deploy security products that make people's lives harder. Like you kind of have to figure right. out ways necessarily to balance that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've heard the old aphorism, you know, you can have it two out of three, better, faster, cheaper. What do you want? Pick two and I'll do it, but you can't have all three. And you're sort of saying like, people used to say the same thing about security, but doesn't have to be that way, right? Like you can have your cake and eat it too when it comes to security. Yeah, I think absolutely that's the case. And actually we see the the walls breaking down even like organizationally. So one of the things that we observe sometimes that I think hints at, at this change is we see a lot of organizations where the IT team reports into the security team. And I think in, in some ways that's almost this nod to like, hey, we need to be productive, but we also need to be secure. We need to make sure that we're automating as much as possible sort of from like a technology engineering first perspective. So I, I think there is a a recognition of that being an issue. And I think that increasingly what you're finding is people are addressing maybe some of those traditional friction points with automation. They're really balancing and thinking about the user experience impact of what it is that they're doing. And then they're making sure that they are judicious about how they sort of balance the, the rollout of those technologies and solutions another aphorism, which is um, the best security solution is the one that people will use, which I remember being something that I kept in mind. I worked at Auth0 before they were acquired uh, by Okta. That was actually the role that I had before I moved over to Stack Overflow. So I wrote about a lot of this, you know, concepts of identity and access management from the perspective of solving business problems. And I think one thing you were saying a minute ago that I wanted to come back to was this idea of having IT teams actually roll up to security teams and how, you know, that's sort of a reflection of this kind of shift left attitude. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I see it definitely in a lot more kind of tech forward companies. That is a lot of the companies in the seven by seven is what they call it in the San Francisco kind of area, obviously in the Valley as well. But I think what you see is that strategically IT is becoming more than just help desk. It's actually becoming sometimes the place where maybe attackers are targeting because when you look at things like credential enrollment or credential recovery, like those are places where you can actually attack like the authentication cycle and get access to someone's account. So I view that organizational change as a recognition that the productivity and security concerns are kind of inextricably linked. That the idea that IT is just help desk is obviously incorrect and that it's really IT is an enabler of the business and how you enable the business means you also have to do that in a secure way. And so I think that organizational shift, again, I don't see it everywhere, but in the places that I do, I think it's a recognition that IT is about enablement, security is about keeping things secure, and you really have to combine those two things together to get the best outcomes for your business. And Other times you kind of see IT rolling up to finance and what you end up seeing is like a little bit of a different focus. You see the focus on help desk, on automation, on SaaS license recovery, kind of like more of the financial aspects of how IT can enable the business and the cost of it. And 
Mm-hmm. I just don't know if that's every business makes their own choice in terms of their priorities. But I think it's very interesting when I see IT kind of roll up into security because you see that focus on the balance between productivity and security versus just IT being like a cost center. Yeah. So I heard a lot about zero trust security, right? Everybody's trying to get their zero trust, zero trust. What exactly is it? And do you think this is a sort of like a good way to solve some of these security problems? Yeah, definitely. is. so I think the simplest explanation of zero trust is that you should not take trust signals from a network. So what does that mean? That means in the old world, you used to log into your corporate network, maybe via VPN, or when you showed up to work, you would plug into the secure Wi-Fi, and that automatically granted you some amount of trust within your corporate network. It meant you could access different resources, you could access different systems, machines, and so forth. And the fundamental shift is that when all those resources moved outside of the corporate network into the cloud, you kind of lost this ability to provide a security signal based on being on the trusted network because now the network is effectively the wi-fi it's the internet it's the starbucks wi-fi right you're saying the the physical proximity right getting through security getting to my desk being in that Mm -hmm. building meant that i had passed some sort of security check and then i you know logging into that network a slight you know maybe a second there and so that was good yeah exactly or even remotely logging into it via vpn the idea was that you had some you know, authentication scheme associated with a VPN access and a VPN client and a certificate on it. And so those were all things that you could control the enrollment around. And so you could kind of attest to the fact that this user was trusted based on the fact they were able to access that network. Whether that was good or not, I think you could debate a lot because someone could steal a machine and then log into your VPN. There's lots of things that make VPNs not entirely secure, but that was the idea with the old security primitives of network-based security. And then the idea of zero trust is, well, that network security layer is kind of out of the door entirely. So how do we actually secure that world? We have to authenticate all traffic. We should look at devices and user identity to make sure that we understand the device and the user who's logging in. We should manage authorization granularly and make sure that users just have the access they need to perform the job that they need for as long as they need it and then remove it. And so that, that's kind of conceptually the idea of zero trust. Right. A few things have changed for me recently. I went from, you know, a lot of 2FA where I was using my phone and occasionally like a token to a number of things now offering me biometric. Does that help in a zero trust environment like that? Again, like you said, kind of throws it back on the user. So now my Chrome password autofill, you know, requires my fingerprint and they added something called passkey or something yesterday. Mm -hmm. And same for, you know, my iPhone, you know, everything that's stored in the passcode there can use my face ID. And so that feels like a pretty strong approach. Like, I don't know if there's a stronger approach in your mind than biometric. Yeah, so... A lot of what that touches on at the end of the day is user identity and device identity. So it is that it is that identification part of the zero trust sort of pattern, if you will. And to your point, when you look at things like passkeys and YubiKeys and external like hardware tokens that use U2F and FIDO-based authentication, those are the strongest, best authenticators. They are non-fishable. They're non-social engineeringable. They are truly the best authenticators you can possibly get. The challenges really kind of evolve once you have those rolled out. It's about enrollment, recovery, 
you have a piece of hardware now that you have to manage the lifecycle around. Like not everyone has laptops that have passkeys enabled on them, or if you're going to deploy YubiKeys, you have to physically get these tokens out to your end users. So it kind of creates a, a new set of challenges, but at the security level, to your point, it is the best authenticator you can use. I remember hearing a while back there was uh, some sort of, you know, AI face app going around that, <laughs> you know, would make you look old or young or swap genders or something. But the rumor was that this was just uh, people stealing face data. Is something like that possible to sort of steal and spoof some of the biometric data? I mean, yeah, it's it's a little bit terrifying. I think there was, I'm not saying anything confidential here, but I think uh, there was an attack recently on the Silicon Valley company. It was basically done via their help desk and they spoofed the voice, I think, of the person or something like that. So that it was it was effectively using AI and kind of your ability to rapidly assume identity aspects of someone approximately that feels and looks like them to be able to, in this particular case, I think it was like credential recovery or something like that was the attack vector. I'm kind of murdering the uh, the scenario here because I, I don't have it off the top of my head. But the idea was that they did use AI to actually spoof the voice in this particular context. Right. Yeah, I've started turning down voice ID for financial institutions, which offer it because that one seems like particularly susceptible. I myself, having done a lot of podcasting, know that voice cloning is quite easy. Feels yeah, like and the your kind voice of thing is that, out there, Ben. <laughs> my voice is, is out there. And, you know, a fingerprint, you know, feels like it has to be done in person. A face, I guess, it needs to look at a face in the real world. Whereas your voice ID could be coming from a microphone and it won't know the difference, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't matter. That's right. It is a little scary, though, how prolific these attacks are. I mean, I remember when we were just a a five-person company, we would get spam text messages, you know, quote-unquote, like, from Alex Bobby to the employees saying, contact me quickly, I have an urgent issue, like that kind of thing. I think it just highlights how easy these attacks are at scale to just target pretty much everybody. And I think AI is going to make that worse in some ways because it's going to be even easier to do more sophisticated attacks where you can clone someone's voice. You can use context from their LinkedIn to make the message more right. interesting. You know, There's all sorts of scenarios you can use it for. All right, so get this. This is my book pitch. I'm just going to give it to you since I promised Ryan I would find ways to work in my book pitch. <laughs> so uh, did you read that New York Times article about this wonderful medical advancement where this woman had a stroke and then she had a deep brain implant? And now, you know, they taught this, this deep neural net to look at her brain activity and then she could speak to them. She was actually thinking like A for alpha, B for beta, and then she would spell out the words and like, you know, she was able to communicate. Are you familiar with this, Alex? Or familiar with this concept? This sounds really fascinating, but I have not read this article. Right. So they created like a brain computer interface, but it required her to have, you know, this intense surgery, which she needed because she'd had a stroke and was paralyzed. And then over time, they would be like, her mind worked fine. She just couldn't, you know, like move her body to articulate sound. So they'd say, think about an A, and they'd look at the brain activity. Think about an A, they'd look at the brain activity. And over time, the deep neural net, you know, figured it out. Okay, when I see this brain activity, it's an A. And then she could build up from there to letters and then build up from there to words and build up from there for sentences. So in that scenario, you know, you're starting to get to a place where like the machine can read your mind a little bit. You do need to have like surgery and you need to train the machine. But there was a paper that came out in Nature this month in October where they had a cohort of a thousand people and they were inside a, it was like an ECG, MCG, like a magnetic and an electric thing that looked at the signals from their brains. 
So they didn't have to have an invasive surgery. This technically could be a wearable. And they would have them listen to uh, a short story. And then the machine would guess what sentence they were listening to and get it, you know, somewhere from like 50 to 80% of the time. So the next security vector, just so you're thinking ahead here, (laughs) is when the computer can actually read your mind. At that point, (laughs) I don't know what the next best step is. That's pretty, yeah, that'd be pretty game over. The um, craziest attack I've ever heard of was, oh man, again, I'm going to get this totally wrong, but it was like they patched into the microphone on the device and based on the sounds the network was making or something like that, you could figure out keystrokes and it was just, it's insane stuff. The kind of things that you can do to your point, once you have like machine algorithms going all over these these kind of like inputs and which is effectively what that is that the brain is just making different electronic pulses and you're kind of interpreting that at the machine level to to process it into some sort of set of outputs and yeah amazing all right well maybe blockchain solves this (laughs) does that thing have any utility ryan told me they're using it at the dmv in california does that have any place in zero trust some headline somewhere i don't think so i'm very skeptical there was a minute there where like everything was blockchain, mm-hmm. like everyone was creating blockchain technologies and putting it in their products and things like that. And I think when you just took a step back and thought about, well, what is the blockchain? Like, what is the unique value that it provides you? It provides you the ability to have an unalterable ledger of historical transactions. Right. You just kind of have to look at like, what is your technology? What are you trying to solve for? And is there value in an unalterable ledger? for what it is that you're solving for. (laughs) And 99% of the time when you hear people pitching blockchain, those two things have nothing to do with each other. There's like no value in unalterable ledger associated Mm -hmm. with what the use case that they're telling you about. So that's kind of my litmus test. Yeah. I think the pitch was something like, you know, it creates a system where it's easy to generate a token that's completely unique. And, you know, I guess it's like something only the person on one side needs to be able to know and remember. And then the unalterable ledger on the other side, you know, can use it to ID and put them in. But why that would be better than, you know. We already have uh, PGP keys. Like, let's just use that. Yeah. Yeah. As you say, all all that to me sounds like um, generating a token in cryptography, Mm -hmm. which we have (laughs) a lot of technology around. It's just cryptography all the way down. Okay. I mean, that's where (laughs) the slave is just. It's all math. Satoshi was just sending an interesting idea to a cryptography mailing list. He wasn't trying to create all this trouble. He was like, does anybody think this idea is cool? I mean, the big question is, are any of you guys in on Bitcoins? Do you have a stash? Yeah, right. You think we'd be on this podcast if we had a stash of Bitcoins? (laughs) Well, I don't know what the most recent Bitcoin price is. Big collapse. I would say of all of us, Ben is uh, the most bullish on crypto. Yeah. I also had the most missed opportunities to to be filthy rich, but I missed them yeah. all. What about that company that like wants to scan my eyeballs so that AI will know who I am in the future? Do you have an opinion on that from a security perspective? Is this the clear company? Don't they do oh, that yeah. at the airport? Oh, it's, it's Sam Altman's like orb company. Oh, boy, I don't know. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. It's like biometrics tied to crypto or something like that. Yeah, you have to submit to like an iris scan, which is then put on their blockchain. And that way in the future, like when you're communicating with people, you'll be able to authenticate that it's you, a human, not an AI version of you. Interesting. I mean, that sounds really interesting. I'm a little bit out though. I'm kind of like not in on the idea of my biometrics floating around somewhere in some easily inspectable 
blockchain that is controlled by a private company. I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like, yeah. yeah, that's one of those things where you'd have to be, you have to be really diligent. Like the cat's out of the barn for me. I've given my iris over to clear once into something on my fingerprint. Like I just assume that stuff's on the dark mm -hmm. web. You know, what am I going to do? Yeah, probably. I mean, your social security number two, for sure. Right. Credit card data. It's all there. It's all there. <laughs> so with if, you know, biometrics and all these, these zero trust things are, are sort of the answer. What, what is the, the best practices to sort of maintain really good security practices here? It's tricky to answer that question because I think the reality is it always changes. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, and it's always changing kind of based on what the lowest hanging fruit is for attackers. I think Ben's point earlier, moving to strong, phishing-proof, social engineering-resistant cryptography-based authenticators is, is kind of like the next step in the journey. I think there's a lot of companies out there that just started on their multi-factor authentication journey. Like they just rolled out push notifications or something like that. And so they're like, wait a second, we, gotta, we have to do more than that. We have to do better than that. So they're like figuring that part of it out. But once you solve the authentication piece, you have to solve permission management. You have to solve credential enrollment and recovery. So it really just kind of depends on, I hate to say it, but like, the attacks du jour, mm -hmm. sort of where are the attacks coming from? Where are they going to be coming from the next year or two? I think that's really where you have to focus from a security perspective. And it's always a little bit of a game of cat and mouse. Like, I don't think there's a single, you know, roll out this solution and you're going to be totally fine. It's a never ending journey for better or worse. It's, it's still going to be coming from botnets on smart fridges. Yeah. Or hacked HVAC systems. Yeah. <laughs> So Baton is a open source identity security protocol. Do you think being open source makes security protocols safer or less safe? I think it definitely makes them more safe. Take, for example, SAML and OIDC as authentication protocols. Without a doubt, those protocols have made authentication and federation extremely secure. And there have been fundamental vulnerabilities found in like SAML implementations and things like that. But the reason you're able to find those and address them so quickly is because of the openness of the protocol. And so I think the fact that we don't have 20 different federation mechanisms floating around out on the internet means there isn't a huge attack surface area to attack these different applications from a federation perspective. There's really like one or two ways to do it. And so I, I think there's, without a doubt, that makes the world more secure. Cool. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. Let's shout out someone who came on Stack Overflow and helped to spread a little knowledge. A lifeboat badge awarded two days ago to Matthew Watson for coming on and saving a question from the dustbin of history with a great answer. How do I check if an array is null or empty? Appreciate it, Matthew. You've helped over 32,000 people figure that out. As always, I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Find me on X at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions for the program, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like it, leave us a rating and a review. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on X at Arthur Donovan. And uh, you can find the blog at stackoverflow.blog. And I'm Ira May. You can also find me on stackoverflow.blog and on social media at Ira Maybe, E-I-R-A Maybe. So I'm Alex Bovey, CEO, co-founder of Conductor One. You can find me on LinkedIn, Alex Bovey, or at conductor1.com. Wonderful. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>